Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, everyone's favorite newspaper. And the podcast is supported by Ben Pet Express, best local source for healthy products for pets since 1993. Order online at benpetexpress.com for free deliveries or daily curbside pickup from nine to five. They probably have more hours available now. This was written deep in the pandemic. Um, I am joined by Kelly Cannon Miller, Executive Director of the Deschutes County Historical Society, which operates the Deschutes Historical Museum in downtown Bend. Graduate of Portland State University with an MA in history. Serves on the editorial board of the Oregon Encyclopedia, which we are definitely going to talk about. Okay. For both the Oregon Encyclopedia and the Oregon Historical Quarterly. Member of the Deschutes Cultural Coalition. Daughter of an archaeologist. Uh, spent parts of her childhood in the deserts of southeastern Oregon cataloging rock art and in the back rooms of regional universities and museums. Sounds thrilling. That's where I like to say that the, the nut didn't fall too far from the tree. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Kelly, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Humble podcast. Um, I ran into Kelly and we started to talk about all things 1918 and, and earlier and I thought you would be fabulous to come on and rap a little bit about how things are different and ultimately remain the same. Um, maybe before we dive in, um, how is the museum faring and what are you, um, what's currently happening there? Well, we're closed like, um, every, like everyone else is. Um, we had closed on March 17th proactively before the governor's order came down Um, And we're hanging in there. Obviously, we still have a lot of info requests coming in, um, a lot of people seeking out information. So we're working behind the scenes to keep working on that. Um, We were extraordinarily lucky a couple of years ago that um, the great Shirley Ray, um, who we now refer to around the museum as Saint Shirley, um, had left us some money in her will. And we think that we now think that Shirley was, um, oh, what's the word for it when, when you're, um, you can predict the future, like psychic. Here, yeah. yeah, that um, we, we had this gift and it was sitting in the bank and, and you always have a hundred ideas of what to do with the money, right? We, there's so many projects. How do we even winnow it down? And we hadn't agreed on anything and, and hadn't decided quite how to split it up. And now we know why. It's because uh, that's really going to help us um, survive this um, piece. So, um, but like you're talking about, everyone has lots of questions about past pandemics. And it's a great time to be a historian right now yeah. um, because you get into these great conversations about history and pandemics and diseases that change the world um, or, and how we're different now and then and, and this weird sense of nostalgia that people have for those, you know, it, when you're far enough away from it that it's romantic then yeah. versus the pain of living through it now. Um, so yeah, we're, we're working on our reopening procedures. We're obviously, museums and cultural centers and theaters are in phase two of reopening. So we're watching the numbers and waiting to see if phase two is gonna get to happen. Um, 
and then finding out what date we get to start opening. Yeah. So. Well, phase two is a lot, it's a lot better to be in phase two than to be in phase three where most of our festivals are. Yes. Yeah. And to be honest, when we thought, when we thought phase one might include us, we were a little bit terrified, right? You know, we have a lot of, um, we have a lot of volunteers who are in that high risk category and they're kind of falling into two camps. One of one camp is completely bored out of their minds. They don't want to be home for one more minute. <laughs> Can we please come to the museum and work behind the scenes and do anything? <laughs> and then we have the volunteers who are, you know, emailing us and saying, we love you. We can't wait to see you again, but you're not going to see us until September or October. Right, right. Yeah. And so trying to respect both sides of that. Well, Kelly, let's talk a little bit about what we what you do know and 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 don't know about the differences between I mean a lot of people draw comparisons to 1918 I think there's other times that you had mentioned in some of the information you sent over about other times we used to quarantine didn't quarantine um can you speak a little bit to that sure um yeah the it's to a certain extent history is always comparing apples to oranges we have these things that we live through that it feels identical and, and that gives us, that's when history is great. It gives us this sense of community and, and feeling connected and we can survive it because our ancestors survived it too. Um, so, so we're going to be okay. Um, however, nothing's ever exactly the same. You know, we're now in the 21st century. Our population is completely different. Um, you know, the, the circumstances of the night of the past pandemics are not exactly the same as right now. So you're never going to have that true comparison. It's always going to be kind of apples to oranges. But I think the biggest thing that is completely different is the development of the modern medical community. So when, one of the questions I got asked about the 1918 flu pandemic is, you know, how are they taking care of, um, you know, the medical staff? the hospital, what was happening. And my response was, there wasn't really one, not like you think of it today. There was one hospital and it was essentially, it would look like a house to anyone looking at it. There were five nuns who staffed it. Um, and there was a dozen doctors in the community that had you know, active or semi-active practices. So when you talk about a pandemic where all of a sudden, 40 to 50 people are critically ill with the flu, you know, every day. Right. You're talking about that, a, a small, tiny hospital that could handle about 20 people and five nuns and a dozen doctors. So your orderlies, when, um, when the flu pandemic hit Bend and, and Deschutes County, we were in the second wave um, that fall of 1918. So everyone knew to take it seriously because they had already had reports about the first wave and people in the community had already lost um, family and friends to the flu abroad because the other big piece of it is that it's World War I. So you have some soldiers from Bend who have died afar from the flu. Right. So the very first case, they shut everything down and they immediately set up an emergency hospital in the, what we know as Boys and Girls Club today across the street from the source and from the museum. And everyone who staffed it, this is, this is one of the huge differences. 
the hospital was staffed by your neighbors. So the school teachers who weren't working, um, the businesses who were closed, the owners, uh, theater owners who weren't running, you know, their programs at the theaters. Right. Robert Sawyer with the Bulletin, he was working a shift every day. So it was your community members who were checking you in and helping take care of you and, and trying to keep you as comfortable as possible. Um, you know, definitely no ventilators. So I think that's the major difference is the development of modern medicine, but then hand in hand with that is our expectations of modern medicine, that anything we get you know, there's going to be a team of doctors and nurses and a building where you can go to with equipment and medication, and they will do everything in their power to help you survive. Whereas... Um, and Kelly, don't you think some of it too is our expectation of like <clears throat> inconvenience, you know, where, where you know, we're, we're certainly not being asked to do many shifts right now. And um, thankfully the cases are low, but, um, but it's also that we're, you know, other than how it's directly affecting you, there isn't um, there isn't that huge outpouring of of need for volunteers right now. Yeah, yeah, I, or is, even it, scripted volunteers, not necessarily volunteers, but like you know, everybody all hands on deck. Which yeah, I mean, we haven't seen. I certainly haven't seen that in my lifetime. No, the the thing though that's similar is the desire to help. Yeah. Um, we actually have in the collection of the museum an oral history from one of the doctors. Um, it's an oral history that was recorded in 1953, um, and it's Dr. James Donovan. And so the funny story about Dr. Donovan is that he had quit his med medical practice um, in the Midwest to come out here to be a rancher. He had this dream of being a rancher, right, this really romantic dream. Because in the interview, he laughs and says, turns out I wasn't much of a rancher. And then when the flu pandemic hit, they put him in charge of the emergency hospital, and he sort of never went back. He stayed in, in medicine again after the flu pandemic. Right. And his, what he talks about in that interview is um, how heartwarming it was, the community response to caring for everyone. And when I look at things like the Pandemic Partners page of Bend and, and you see social media, um, that is the constant, is this need to take care of one another. And you know, most of us are seeking ways to help and, and stay connected. So I think we have that drive to help. We're just manifesting it in different ways this time. Right. You also mentioned that um, the concept of quarantine would have been more familiar um, because of people's familiarization with polio and the way polio needed to be avoided. Can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah. So look around in your life, and if you have someone who was um, a kid in the, in the 50s and the 60s, they will remember this. Um, Polio, there was actually something called polio season. And if you go through the Ben Bulletin in the 30s, 40s, and early 50s, there's this routine of editorials that polio season is coming. Let's all remember what we need to do now. We have to wash our hands. Make sure that you practice <laughs> good hygiene, um, dispelling, you know, myths. Here's things we think, you know, cause it, but here's, we know it's not this. Um, and when you look nationally, you would see 
what's, what was, what's really different about the quarantines and stay in homes during those periods is they tended to be much more localized rather than trying to do it nationally all at once like we're trying to do right now, you would have these pockets of outbreaks and everything around that would shut down. So a swimming pool or a beach, it was thought for a really long time that polio was transmitted through water. So whenever a group of children would be infected with polio, it tended to be the swimming places would all be immediately shut down. And, that, and it did tend to affect children uh, more so than adults. So you would see the closures of schools and places where children congregate is, is what they were really after. And the, you know, the, the story of the creation of the vaccine for polio and the fact that we as humans have been able to nearly eradicate that and a, a lot of other dangerous diseases is what gives us that comfort level now, right? I mean, even now we're all just waiting for the vaccine. So we can go back to not caring and we're glued to our TV sets. They yeah. yeah. Come on, just give us the vaccine and life can go back to normal. Right. And that, that didn't exist before we had, there were two vaccines heading into the 20th century, um, smallpox and rabies. Um, but it isn't until you get to the fifties with polio and measles before you get into this routine of vaccinating us, you know, from, from childhood. What, what um, Laurel, why don't you had a question you wanted to proffer? Well, actually, Kelly, I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about the data collection and, you know, historical death rates. You said that, like, in these types of situations, often um, we get the numbers wrong, like right out of the gate and then kind of go back and revise and it's hard to really ever know like who actually died of what at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah, and you really see that with, um, that was one of the things that the, the great influenza, the 1918-1920 um, pandemic taught us is trying to have data tracking. The numbers are all over the place, you know, from 30 million on, up to 100 million in some people's guesses of how many people died over that year and a half period. Mm. And when we talk about that flu, it, it really is a year and a half. It's um, January of 1918 through the summer of 1919, that that's what they consider concentrated. But we know that flu has stuck with us. And so you see the ups and downs of flus over the years and flu changing and morphing and getting new strains. The pandemic is what taught us to be looking at that. When, when modern medicine at the time, you know, tried to start reacting, you know, looking at the smallpox vaccine, how did that work? What worked about it? How can we replicate this for the flu? You know, trying to keep track of everything, that's when the data really started to become important. And the steps that the medical world took leaving that pandemic actually leads to the creation of the World Health Organization and, and the bodies that are trying to educate us today. And just the sheer idea that there would be this group that all they did was track infectious diseases is all born from that worldwide experience. It took out, um, by most estimates, that flu wiped out a fifth of the world's population. You know, 40 to 50 million is the number that most historians can come closest to. And so from 
from an archivist standpoint and a historian standpoint, watching, you know, reports on, you know, data collection that are coming out right now, you, again, one of the things that's different is because of social media and the 24 seven news cycle, we're watching science struggle with this as it happens. Right. And that's completely different than any other time in history. You know, so it seems like every other day on the, on the news, it's this test, you know, how well was this test working early in the process? And then you find out that they're able to go back and reclassify deaths as COVID after the fact. So it, it's definitely going to take a really long time for the epidemiology community to sort through the numbers, to leave any kind of historical record for us as historians to look back on and say, okay, we think these numbers have enough validity to try and use them. But it's going to be really difficult for, you know, historians to, to really piece this thing together to know how many cases there actually were. Do you, when you look back at old um, records uh, around the flu, do you see the same kind of divisions that you see today? I mean, social media helps propagate that kind of um, friction. And you've got some people who are like, don't quarantine, quarantine, masks, my mask. Mm -hmm. how, how do you, uh, do you see any of that? You know, not, not so much. There, it's, it happened more in larger urban areas. In, in Bend, um, specifically with the flu pandemic, it was really a scary thing. Um, one, of, one of the hallmarks of the flu pandemic of 1918 is that the, the hardest hit demographic was 20 to 30 year olds. So again, referencing Dr. Donovan's oral history interview, one of the things he talks about is going to a boarding house and picking up this young Swedish immigrant logger who had been stricken with the flu, big burly guy, and they're trying to move him to the emergency hospital and he dies on the steps. And so apparently healthy, you know, 20 and 30 year olds could get the disease and be dead in 24 hours. And that kind of put everyone on their heels. I think that the smaller the community, it, it, you know, you really took it seriously and you could see it in front of you. Death happened. That's kind of the other thing about the differences in our medical world and how we treat death is that most of these people dying, it was visible to everyone. They weren't in isolation in a hospital. And that psychologically, I think, meant people behaved and, and took it seriously. Well, like you were saying, neighbors would have been right there taking care of and relating stories and family situations yeah. that would have been shared. And it would yeah. have, and I can't, I don't, despite what uh, people believe about social media, I just don't think that replaces that kind of communication. It's just more, more honest and sincere. Yeah, it creates a disconnect. Right. So. And there were there was plenty of reason to um, well one of one of the reasons why it's so hard to track the numbers is because it was World War One, and so you have a, most of the countries of the world busy trying to deal with that to pay attention to this flu thing that the doctors are talking about. The reason it it was accidentally labeled Spanish flu was because Spain wasn't involved in the war. So Spain was just the first country who was out there banging the pot saying, hey, there's something really bad happening. 
um, and, and talking about it openly in the press. So um, there was lots of reasons for political division and, and unhappiness in 1918 surrounding World War I that, you know, meant that when the flu came and really pushed, up, pushed back on the world, um, it, by the time it was done, everyone was just exhausted. And for decades, people didn't really talk about it. You know, they wanted to forget the war. They wanted to forget the flu. They just wanted, you know, to move on and rebuild the world. Oh, if there's a vaccine, I'll never talk about the pandemic again. <laughs> unless, unless you come knocking on my door for some bit of personal history, I won't want to, I won't want to hear COVID-19 again. I'll be one of them. Yeah, boy, the buzzwords. So that's the other thing that the museum we're actually trying to work on um, is cataloging all of this. I mean, every museum and historical society is, you know, out there saying, write stuff down, write down what you're experiencing so that you pass that on to future generations. And with social media, the reality is, is there is a ton of, you know, right. COVID-related creativity and, and, and stuff that, that's happening in these digital formats. And so how do you capture that? You know, I, like, okay, so we got to go print all of the blogs off of Visit Bend and, and stick them on paper, you know, so that they're there for people to read in the future. You know, here it is, our tourism organization, you know, writing these great blogs telling everyone to stay home. Right. I, you know, how do you capture all of that? Yeah, I, it's funny. My son brought an old 1945 Life magazine home, and there's a full page ad in there about not coming to San Francisco. Don't visit San Francisco now. The sailors are all here. We can barely contain it. And I thought, well, that's a new role for a for the visitor organization. I was going to give it to Kev because I'm sure it's appropriate for him right now. Oh, totally. <laughs> well, and the buzzwords, the buzzwords that we've all picked up. Um, frictionless transaction <laughs> is one of them. Um, when I was reading the guidelines for museums and cultural centers to reopen, they kept talking about a stable cohort, you know, so like, I'm like, what is a stable cohort? I'm like, oh, so like a family group, right? So they've already been in isolation together. I can let them stay together inside the museum. I don't have to go bust them up, right? Yeah. Well, even the term social distancing now has become so prevalent when for me, that was just something that you naturally wanted to do to keep your sanity. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Now it's a necessity. Exactly. Um, well, well, Kelly, what, what are you guys doing right now at, at the museum or in your ties? You've got this time. I mean, what, what do you look to to try to preserve or how are you guys moving forward? Well, I actually hired a photographer. I hired um, Gary Calicott Photography um, and kind of turned him loose. I said, are you willing to violate the stay-at-home orders and you know, grab a mask and go out in the world for me. And he's started passing his um, pictures to us. We kind of hit, um, you know, a list of what we thought we wanted him to go out and capture and send him to Sisters in Redmond and, and get outside of Ben and get the whole county. Right. Um, so we have some great, great reader boards with messages. Uh, just uh, the eeriness of empty streets, you know, the, the downtown Ben shots that he got, like, what is this? There's no cars, no people, and it's daytime, you know, in Bend, Oregon. Right. Um, yeah, different, uh, the parks, 
playgrounds with caution yellow tape closing them off and the signage that the park district has had to put up everywhere. You know, the hand washing stations that um, the one company donated to the city and put around town so that people could wash their hands. Um, so a lot of stuff like that. But then we do have some teachers that we're talking to that are working, some English teachers um, are working with their students on stay-at-home COVID journals. And a couple of them have already said that they're going to donate those to us when they're done. Um, and capturing, you know, digital things like the Visit Ben blog and um, lots of pictures of people wearing masks. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. do you, with the digital, do you have a big, um, do you have a big server that you pull stuff like that down or, because uh, my, my vision is just going through paper and pulling pictures out and going, you know, or yeah, no. film. You know. We're it's the digital world for museums is tough and and it change. I'm not joking. It changes every year. I think on um, what the recommendations are for your digital um, archives and you know pictures are born digital now. So how do we make sure that we save that? And the museum world actually, I not I just had a meeting with this at noon today about creating a updating our digital preservation plan. We, archivists have come full circle to the place of if you have digital photographs, you need to have prints made of them oh, because wow. paper. <laughs> right, right. And it does, it takes, um, we have this with oral histories all the time too of do you or don't you do oral histories with video or just with audio? As soon as video enters the equation, it's an enormous file. It's, right. it's not only an enormous file, but then the software programs that you need to make sure that you have that will open it and run it in the future. I mean, I, how many disks do you have in your office that you, there's, the disk might be fine, yeah. but you don't have a computer or the software to be able to open it. Uh, we still have little Zoom backups and, um, you know, those those hard, hard disks, the move yes. copies to the hard disks. And, uh -huh. uh, and I don't have any of those things, but I got old source back issues on all these, you know. Yep. Yeah, I can't read for sure. And right. So, there's, they can't read those anymore. No. And so that's the ongoing challenge is that not only do you have to keep the the, the bits of the digital thing safe, you have to make sure that you're getting it transferred to the new software, to the new computer and the backups. And it, it gets to be a, a whirlwind really quickly and not a cheap one. Well, I'm sure a lot of people can relate if they think about where all their personal pictures are stored on some dusty hard drive they've been meaning to create photo books of and yeah. label them and, you know, that's yep. And the thing we've gotten really bad with is being willing to let a picture go, you know? Oh, uh, you guys probably remember back when you had 24 pictures on a roll of film that you took on vacation yeah. and that was all you got. And now you can come home with like 2000, you know, photographs, you know, on your hard drive. Well, not to diverge too much, but I used to every year I would take the best 50 photos and put them in a book and I would do it every year and they stop right when we started moving to digital photos and so there's this great catalog of of all of that and then when you want to see anything past that you got to go to the tub that's under the bed <laughs> you know that's just 
stuffed. And then you got to go to the hard drive and it just, the whole history of the family falls apart quickly. But, <laughs> but that was a great system. It was at one I'm time. Super impressed. Yeah, they were good. They were good books too. So I go back and look at them, but you know, so I, Kelly, I'm going to do, I'm going to get there with the, with the <laughs> ones. I'm going to go back to my historian roots. That's good. Don't worry. We don't, we don't listen to ourselves either. yeah and that's what actually that's funny because um the stay-at-home thing of everyone has moved through these cycles and it started with baking and everybody started their own sourdough starter and because you couldn't get yeast at the store and so as everyone's and then we're binging and what tv show are you binging what movie do you have to watch right now and then you know books what books are you reading so we're to the point of quarantine where people are into their photos. I can see it. Have you seen it with your friends? Got the time. Your yes, family? I had a couple of friends. I've told that little bookstore. I was like, get, get one of those little old-fashioned books where you got to be selective. Yep, yeah. yep. So we're into, we're into the historical photographs of your life documentation phase of quarantine. Well, I hope we're not going to go back to, I, I didn't like it when it got extrapolated and then people started putting like little bits of rope and buttons and everything around the pictures. And we had the big, you know, and the little tickets were glued down. And what was that oh called? It had a Scrapbooking. Scrapbooking. Oh my was, God. I was glad when that sunsetted. I was glad. So that, that looms in our future <laughs> for things that are going to get offered to us as donations are these scrapbooks that we're going to want to like, Oh no, we want the pictures, but not the accoutrements around it. Well, mate, you know what? There's a traveling uh, exhibit for you. Like Mm -hmm. the, the, the 1990s scrapbooks, they'll be be displayed, you know? So yeah. Along with Beanie Babies. Now there's I still I, I do still have a couple dusty beanie babies that are gathering value somewhere I'm sure where <laughs> out in the barn in a tub <laughs> I'll be I'll be bringing you the tub Kelly you the can, tub of beanie babies and scrapbooks yeah you can categorize them see if yeah. there's any value so well Kelly we're drawn to the end of our time I, is there um, Anything that you'd like to speak to that we didn't come around to or a story that is particularly poignant? Well, the, the family that we always come back to is the Vandevert family. If you think about just the community and um, that second wave of the flu. So all of the, all of the Vandevert um, boys became doctors and all the Vandevert girls became teachers. But the youngest Vandevert girl, Catherine Grace, didn't want to be a teacher anymore. Um, And she was 28. And her uh, older brother, Clint, Dr. Vandevert, who um, comes back to Bend from Willamette University and his um, medical degree in 1914 and opens his practice. And he practices in Bend for 50 years. And everyone called him Doc Van um, for Dr. Vandevert. He was the city health official um, at, during the pandemic, and um, Catherine was 28 years old. She had left teaching and had taken a job at the post office, and 
she was this really um, gregarious personality that everybody loved and gravitated towards and was this source of um, just fun and it's the West and anything is possible. And um, she was struck with the flu the very first week of the emergency hospital and um, died within a few days. Wow. And so here you have this beloved um, young 28 year old um, and her brother is on the front lines trying to care for everyone and has to not only keep up you know, the work, but watch his sister die at the same time. And I think that just drives home that for our community, for Deschutes County, it was only about 5,500 people in, in the place. And so it was very personal. And um, I think that's what's hard watching um, the divisions around right now as we're all getting restless. And at the end is, um, is I don't know that we can walk away with that same heartfeltness that Dr. Donovan felt when he thought about it years later, you know, his first thought was for how much everyone cared about one another. Right. And I think that those stories and, and that are what I try and keep in the front of my mind when you watch the news and, and you see everyone getting restless and, and how do we move through this? I just try and hang on to that. Yeah. I mean, she must've been quite the character of her personality comes through from all the way back there through your story and, and play so large. So, yeah. Well, Kelly, thank you for being part of our show. I really appreciate you taking the time. during all this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Apart. Um, this has been the Ben don't break podcast powered by the source weekly. We're supported by Ben pet express and uh, next time on this podcast, we will talk to Patty Adair and gain some insight into what it's like to open up a county. <laughs> Thank you for listening.